prior to the Christmas and New Year's break, we were looking at some of the great stories of the Old Testament, and we have just a few yet to do, uh, unless somebody comes up and says, oh, I really wish you'd do this one. Uh, I've just got two or three more. So today we're going to look at uh, the story of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, I have to throw out a disclaimer right off the bat. I preached through the life of David some years ago and uh, turned all that into a book called Digging into the Life of David. And so if you happen to have that book, you may uh, recognize some parts of this sermon this morning because it draws very heavily on what was already in there. But with that disclaimer, uh, we'll take a look at In the Valley with the Giant, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's start reading in verse number 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Succo, which belongs to Judah, they encamped between Succo and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you, the servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Jump down a few verses to verse 20. Verse 20, so David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, and these people answered him as the first ones did. 
Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then all this assembly shall know. That the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Father God, thank you for this, another wonderful uh, history lesson in our Bible. I pray today you'd speak to our hearts from it. Teach us from this wonderful man, David. Teach us from Saul and Goliath and all those who are part of this story. Fill me with your spirit. Help me today, Lord. Forgive me for anything that stands in the way of my being just your instrument this day. Help me, Father, to say exactly what I should as boldly as I should and nothing more. And speak to all of our hearts. Fill us all, Lord, with your Holy Spirit this day that we might hear and respond. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are several men that are described in this story. First of all, there is Saul. Saul was the first king in Israel, and, and as we see what's going on here, he has led his armies against their greatest foe, the Philistines. 
The field of battle is the field of Elah, or the valley of Elah, rather, which is just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem. There's a mountain on one side of that valley where the Philistines were perched with their army, and there's a mountain on the other side where the Israelite army uh, was as well, and the valley stretched between them. Saul is a tragic figure in the history of Israel. He was anointed by God as their first king with great promise and great expectation. But he had disobeyed God. He did not follow God fully. And so God had removed that anointing from him. As a matter of fact, at the time, at this point that we're looking at here, David has already been anointed king. That took place in the chapter prior. But Saul still occupies the throne. The Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, chapter 16, verse 14, and now rested upon David, chapter 16, and verse 13. And so that's Saul. There's also another character in this, and that's David. David, who was the shepherd and the singer and poet and the son of Jesse, the youngest of his sons. When Saul's faithlessness toward God forced his removal from the throne, God sent Samuel to the home of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint him as king. And as we mentioned, that would be the previous chapter. David was the youngest of his sons, and he was a young shepherd at the time. But he would eventually become the greatest of Israel's kings. He would accomplish tremendous things. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would eventually be descended from his line or be one of his descendants. He would write the majority of our book of Psalms and sing the majority of our book of Psalms. And although he would have his ups and downs, he was far from a perfect person. And perhaps we'll look at a couple more stories about David, which would would tell us that, but uh, sometimes he sinned, and sometimes he sinned grievously, yet he never, ever, ever wavered in his faith toward God. And he is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. We'll talk about that a little bit, and explain that a little bit. But he would be described that way throughout his life, a man after God's own heart. So there is Saul, there is David, and then there's this other guy named Goliath. you believe Goliath was? What the Bible says that he was? He was the champion of the Philistines. Do you believe that such a man could have lived? Let me interpret some of the uh, old uh, measurements in there and tell you what he was. He was a man who was nearly 10 feet tall. The uh, six cubits in a span works out, most people would say, to about 9 feet 9 inches tall. Could such a man have existed? I mean, think about that. 9 feet 9 inches tall. That's That's halfway up that wall. That wall is 20 feet, halfway up that wall, 9 feet 9. He, uh, he was a man whose armor alone weighed approximately 150 pounds. His spearhead alone, just the head of the spear, the point of the spear, weighed approximately 15 pounds. Is it believable that such a man could have existed? Some try to explain Goliath in supernatural terms. Some go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. And they try to talk about it. In Genesis 6, it talks about uh, the angel of, of God saw the sons of men that they were fair. And some people interpret that to mean that uh, angels actually intermarried with humans and there was a supernatural race that came from them. I don't believe that at all. I don't think that's what that's talking about at all. But some people say that was where Goliath came from. He, was, he had something supernatural about him. But I don't think that's the case. You know what I think Goliath was? I think he was just a really big guy. That's what I think he was. And you know, he's not really all that unique. 
I came across an interesting list, and, and this is in, in my book if you want to go and read a little bit more about this. But uh, I came across this list of the top ten modern-day giants. And it turns out they're not quite as uncommon as you would think. Let me mention some of them. Bernard Coyne of Iowa died in 1921. He was eight feet four inches tall. Vain, I can't pronounce some of these names. Vaino Millerin was born in Finland in 1909. At one point, he was officially the world's tallest man. He died in 1963. He had reached an official height of eight feet three inches tall. Edouard Beaupre, nice name, Edouard Beaupre, born in 1881, was a circus strong man. He was a star in Barnum and Bailey's. He was the eldest of 20 children born in Canada. While he was of normal height during his first few years of life, by the age of nine, he was six feet tall. And his death certificate showed him as being eight foot three and still growing. As a strong man in the circus, his act was that he would kneel down and pick up a horse on his shoulders and lift it up. Horses up to, you know, 900 pounds or so. Ella Ewing was born in Missouri in 1872. She is known as the Missouri Giant. She grew normally until the age of seven at which time she began to grow rapidly, reaching her maximum height of 8 feet 4 inches. Al Tomaini was a giant who claimed a height of 8 foot 4, weighed 356 pounds, and wore size 27 shoes. Leonid Stadnik was born in 1971 in the Ukraine. He was a registered veterinary surgeon. He died in 2014, at which time he was reportedly 8 foot 5 inches tall. John Carroll, Buffalo, New York, 1932, died in 1969, and while his height was not recorded at the time, it is believed he was very close to nine feet tall. John Rogan, 1868, grew normally until the age of 13. He was believed at, at death to be eight foot nine inches tall, and he only weighed 175 pounds. Can you imagine? An eight foot nine man. 175 Johann Eason was born in America. According to his death certificate from Mendocino State Hospital at the time of death, he was 9 foot 2 inches. That's only 7 inches less than Goliath. 9 foot 2. Robert Wadlow, most people have heard of Robert Wadlow. If you've been to Ripley's, believe it or not, you've seen a likeness of Robert Wadlow as the tallest man in history whose height is verified by indisputable evidence. Now, I don't know what that evidence is, but he was 8 feet 11 inches tall. He weighed 440 pounds, and at the time of his death, at 22, he showed no signs of stopping growing. His coffin weighed half a ton, required 12 pallbearers to carry. And, you know, that's a fairly old list. I mean, as I, as I looked over this and, and was renewing this a little bit and, and rethinking it, I realized there's somebody that's not that far from us who could be added to that list. Have any of you heard of a fellow by the name of Robert Bobrovsky? Robert Bobov, I can't say that, it's got too many consonants in it. Robert Bobrovsky. He lives 45 minutes east of Cleveland. He attends the Spire Academy in Geneva. He was six foot two at the age of eight, seven foot three at the age of 13, and now he's 17 years old and he stands seven foot seven inches tall. Look him up. Oh, go visit him. He's just right down the road. He's most likely not done growing. At the age of 17, he's seven foot seven. I read an article about him as I was preparing for this, and I found an interesting comment in there. They didn't really develop this, and it wasn't their point. It was just a side comment. They said there are actually 30 people in the world who are uh, verifiably taller than he is now. So I don't think we need to ascribe the size of Goliath to anything unusual. I just think he was a big man. 
I think he was a big dude. But however we explain how he got that way, David was staring up at him. He was horrendous. He was terrifying. He was formidable. And David was willing to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. Well, so there's a little background. We looked at Saul. We looked at David. We looked at Goliath. Let's, with that background, consider a few things that we can learn from David's experience here in the the valley uh, with this giant. And the first one has to do with courage. In the valley with this giant, David needed And one characteristic as you read this, I hope you were following along in your Bible as I read, but one characteristic of David that shines forth in the story is just that, isn't it? Courage. Not once do we see the slightest hesitation. Did you not find that interesting? Not not, not once was there any sign of fear or nervousness or trepidation. Amazing, especially in the fact that nobody else had the same thought. Everybody else was scared to death. Unlike some of the other greats that we have looked at, like Gideon, who was cowering in the, uh, in the wine press, uh, trembling, the Bible is always clear to point out the frailties and weaknesses of these guys. There's nothing here about David having any fear. Where were all the mighty men in Israel? Where were they at? There were plenty of them that are described in the Bible. Where was Saul, by the way, who according to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 9 and verse number 2, was from his shoulders and upward higher than anybody? He was the giant in Israel. He was the strong man in Israel. Where was he? Hiding. Afraid. Where was his son Jonathan, who was in and of himself a great warrior? Uh, there was another case where, another time where Jonathan, and only, only his armor bearer was with him carrying a shield in front of him. Uh, he had on an earlier day all by himself slain 20 Philistines by himself. He was a mighty guy. Where was he at? Nowhere to be seen. Where was Abner, the captain of the army? Uh, and he's described as a valiant man in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And, and uh, he was the captain of the host. Just tremendous. Where were all these guys? A fellow by the name of Arthur Pink wrote a book called The Life of David, and I'm going to quote from him several times in this, but he points out that cowardice is one of the consequences of lost communion with God. Proverbs 28.1 says, The righteous are bold as a lion, like leader, like people. And when the Spirit of God left Saul the king, his courage left with it, and with his courage went the courage of the people. Out of the entire army of Israel, there was only one man, he wasn't even part of the army, who showed any courage. And it was David. And he was going to need it in the valley with the giant. He needed it for several different reasons. He needed it because he was going to face ridicule. Look again at verses 28 and 29. 28 and 29. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. The minute brave little David decided to take a stand for God, he found himself ridiculed by others. Ridiculed even by his own brother. Eliab was his oldest brother. You'd think he would have been on his side. Of course, you remember that Eliab was passed over as being the king. If we go back to when Samuel was coming to the sons of Jesse and looking for a king, anointing one, he passed right by Eliab. And maybe uh, his cowardice and lack of character, which he shows here, explains a little bit about why God passed him over in favor of David. Because what he was in his heart now came out in his words as be, in his behavior, as it does in all of us. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. David found himself not only facing the giant Goliath, but the ridicule 
his shirking brother, Eliab, who was too cowardly to act himself. He made sure he heaped ridicule upon David. Verses 28 through 33 are a reminder that when we try to be God-centered, when we try to put God first in our lives, when we try to take a stand for God, there will be opposition. The Apostle Paul experienced that. He stood before Festus, and Festus said to him, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You're out of your mind, Paul. You're a nut. Taping ridicule upon him. And it wasn't just Festus who ridiculed that great apostle. Even some in his beloved church in Corinth did. The whole book of 2 Corinthians is to a large part Paul defending his ministry against those who were attacking him in Corinth. Pink said, Arthur Pink said, the man of God must be prepared to be misinterpreted and to stand alone. So David needed courage if he was going to stand up to ridicule. He needed courage if he was going to face discouragement. And the first thing he experienced after this volunteering for this, going to the king and saying, I'll fight him, I'll fight him, was discouragement. Saul trying to heap it upon him. Look at verse number 33. Verse number 33, Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. The first thing Saul did was point out his inexperience. Again, it's true. If, you're, if you as a Christian are going to try to take a stand for God in any way, someone is always going to be there to say that you're not equal to the task. Saul tried to discourage David by disdaining his equipment. You see that in verses 38 through 40 when he tried to get him to wear his own armor. You don't even have armor. You don't have a sword. You're standing there with a slingshot and a pouch with a few pebbles in it. And he tried to discourage him and disdain his equipment. And again, Christian, if you decide to take a stand for God, you're going to have others whispering in your ear that you don't have what it takes. You're not properly equipped. Your gifts are not up to the task. David needed courage to face discouragement. But finally, David needed courage to face the battle. You know, talk is cheap. In our day and age, talk is cheaper than it's ever been. Everybody in the world posts just nonsense all over the place. And it's amazing how brave people are behind a computer screen or how brave people are when they're sitting in their car with their windows rolled up and the guy's in the next lane to you. Talk is cheap. Many would be verbally able to stand up and, and show courage against ridicule. Telling somebody off is a great gift that many people think in this society today. Many might be able to talk a good game and show courage against discouragement. I don't care what you say. I'm going to go ahead and do it. But it's when the battle starts. The men are actually separated from the boys. David might have been a boy in stature, but he was a man in heart. He had seen Goliath across the field. This was not unknown to him. He knew exactly what he was facing. And yet he had the courage to take the battle to him and, as we read, to run right at him. In the valley, with the giant David needed courage. And so do you. And so do I. Whenever we're in a valley someplace facing one of the giants that might come along in our life, we need courage if we're going to stand for God. Well, in the valley with the giant, he needed courage. In the valley with the giant, this is point number two, he needed clarity. Clarity. There's a movie that I like. Uh, it's a historical movie. It's called Gettysburg. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's a, it's a good uh, reenactment of the Battle of Gettysburg. There's a scene in that, in that movie where uh, the person who's playing General Buford of the Union Army is trying to get his troops all set up real fast because the battle is thick upon them. And he's charging them to get ready. And one of the things he says to them is, keep a clear eye 
I don't think there's anybody in the Bible who has a clearer eye than does David here. He saw things so clearly and with such clarity here. Look at verse number 26. Verse number 26. David spoke to the man who stood by him saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Look at the clarity that he had right there. Regardless of how everybody else might have interpreted the dynamics of this conflict, David understood it for what it was. It was a direct challenge against the people of God, and it was a direct challenge, therefore, against God himself. And that's a common theme of all the heroes of the Bible. I think we've seen it in some of the ones we've already talked about, and as you read your Bible, you're going to see it over and over and over. The people who were great heroes in the Bible were God-centered people. They understood that the issue was God. The issue was not them. God and God alone. This battle was not about Israel versus the Philistines. It was not about the big man versus the underdog. It was not about a giant named Goliath versus the soon-to-be king named David. It was about God and the glory of God and the name of God. He expressed it clearly also in verses 45 and following. Look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you, and this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our It's not the armies of Israel that you have defied Goliath, but rather the God of the armies of Israel. Verse 45. This battle is not about you and me, Goliath, but so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 46. When this battle is over, Goliath, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Verse 47. When we read the history of the life of David... We see over and over and over again, and I mentioned it in the introduction, that David was a man after God's own heart. The Lord had sought such a man, according to 1 Samuel 13. And it is a description that follows David right up to this day. Uh, He was the man after God's own heart. But what makes such a man? Why was he called that? What makes a man after God's own heart? Let me quote Arthur Pink again. He said, the man after God's own heart is the one who is out and out for him, putting his honor and glory before all other considerations. And so here we see it. David was the man after God's own heart because in the valley with the giant, he had the clarity to see this battle for what it was. It was about God, and it was about God alone. He needed courage. He needed clarity. Finally, in the valley with the giant, David needed God to fight for him. I tried to come up with a C there. I couldn't come up with one. He needed God We love it, don't we? We love to cheer on the little guy when he's fighting ridiculous odds. Don't we like that? I used to have Great Danes. I've told you about my Great Danes before. had one Great Dane named Pharaoh, and I had one Great Dane named Maximilian von Meisteringer. (laughs) My children named those dogs. Max got mean, and we had to give him away. And I remember the day that we took him to the person we were giving him to. This person had another little dog, and he said, before I really accept this dog, I have to make sure that they're going to get along. So we took it over to the house to uh, introduce the two dogs. And here was Max. Max could put his feet 
his, his, his feet right here, and his head was up here on me. He was a monstrous dog. And this guy had a chihuahua. <laughs> and so I still have this picture in my mind. The guy was standing on his porch, and here was Max. He's standing there holding Max. And that little chihuahua is down there on the ground. His face right up at Max is just barking and carrying on like he's going to tear him to pieces. And, and I, I had to be impressed. I had to be impressed that that little thing was not the slightest bit afraid of Max, who, by the way, was not afraid of him either, and uh, probably could have knocked him across the yard with one swipe of his paw. But you can't help admiring when the little guy stands up to the big guy, can you? I think I've told you the story about my battle with geese at my pond. I put a pond in some years after I built the house, and of course you know what happens with ponds. Geese come to them. Geese are vile creatures. They're beautiful to look at. I love to see them flying through the air as long as they fly right past my property. I don't like them in my yard. They do horrible, horrible, horrible things to yards, tires of tractors, things like that. It's just terrible. One day, in the midst of one of my battles with the geese, they were completely covering the pond. And I was out mowing. And as I was out mowing, here stood Daddy Goose alongside of the pond, the sentinel. And uh, I was getting closer and closer to them with the tractor. And I thought, well, surely he'll run away. Well, he didn't run away. When I got close enough to him, here I am sitting on top of this big tractor. He attacked the tractor. Now, he had absolutely no hope. But he did, and I had to admire his courage. You see, you can't help admiring when the little guy stands up to the big guy. But here's the fact. Usually, the little guy ends up on the ground. Usually, it doesn't work that way. And, of course, if I wanted to run over the goose, he would have ended up on the ground. There was no way he was going to defeat that. And you know what? Even here, if little puny David had stood alone against Goliath, armed with only a slingshot, he would have been a puddle of goo in absolutely no time. His courage might have been impressive. We might have sung songs about him forever, but he would not have stood up to the armor of Goliath. His clarity of mind, his courage of heart, they would have served him well, but they would not have been enough. He needed more. He needed far more. And he had far more. You see, David was armed with more than a slingshot. Saul saw David standing there dressed as a shepherd, no weaponry in his hands. He thought him inadequately armed. He tried to equip him with his own armor and his own sword and his own helmet. But David tossed it aside because he knew he was already protected by the armor of God. The same armor that had already protected him against the lion and against the bear. We don't spend enough time thinking about little David as a shepherd out in the middle attacking and killing a lion or attacking and killing a bear. We talked about that in amazement with Samson. Here is true of David as well. The same armor that had once protected him from those he knew would protect him now from Goliath. It's the same armor that we as Christians possess according to Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That was the armor that David had. He didn't need Saul's weapons. He already had vastly superior ones at his disposal. And as Pink says, the man of faith has no use for carnal weapons. David reminds us that one Christian, armed with faith in God, invincible. David could say with confidence, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Verse 37, God will fight for me. He could say with complete assurance, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Verse 46. God will fight for me. 
He could calmly look up into the eyes of Goliath who loomed over him and believe the battle already won because the battle is the Lord's. Verse 47. God will fight for me. I read an interesting comment again in Arthur Pink's book as I was preparing this. He said this. He said we get it all wrong when we think the stone just simply thumped Goliath in the head or rang his bell or something like that. He goes back to verse number 5 and says that Goliath's forehead was covered with bronze. Verse number 5 describes Goliath's armor and it says he had a helmet of bronze. And if you think about helmets, they come down over the forehead certainly most of the time, maybe always. So Pink thinks that the stone from David's slingshot went right through that brass, right through that bronze, and into the forehead of Goliath, guided by the power of God. And I don't know if that's true. There's no way we'll know that until we get to heaven and we ask David, hey, just, just what happened there? And won't that be a fun day? Can't wait for that. I don't know if it's true or not, but I know this. A slingshot in the hand of a child of God is mightier than any weapon of evil. It's mightier than anything the devil can throw in its path. It is invincible. Warren Wiersbe said, all of us face giants of one kind or another, but we may overcome them through the power of God. The Apostle Paul said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So let me ask you this, Christian. Are you staring down a giant this morning? Do you find yourself struggling? Oh, I don't know, one of the difficulties and trials in this life. Do you wonder if you have it, what it takes to get through those trials? Listen to me. If you are a child of God, and I hope you heard that word if, because it's a big if. If you are a child of God, if you are a believer, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are saved, if you're born again, and these promises are only for that group. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, none of this applies to you. What you need to do is get saved. What you need to do is trust Jesus so that they do apply to you. But right now we're talking to Christians. If you are in Christ, there is no mountain too high for our God to get us over. And there is no valley too deep for God to get us through. David knew it. He said it so well in his shepherd's psalm. And every time I read this now, I think, I wonder... If that thought came to his mind when he was in the valley with the giant. In Psalm chapter 23, he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There is no valley too deep for God to get us through. There are no seas too rough when you're in the boat with Jesus. There is no army too powerful to defeat our God. And as David proved when he reached into that little pouch and pulled out a little tiny pebble and drew it back, drew it back with a slingshot and buried it in the forehead of Goliath, there is no giant too strong or too big for our God. Verse 47 has a phrase that sums up the whole thing. Look at it in your Bible. Verse 47. The battle is the Lord's. Say that with me. The battle is the Lord's. I didn't hear that. Say it again. The battle is the Lord's. Amen. Let us remember that whatever battle we face, no matter how fierce, it is God's. Whatever giants we face, no matter how towering they are not too big for our God, it is God's battle. One Christian, armed only with faith in God, is invincible. The battle is the Lord's. Father, we're so thankful for the story of David and Goliath. We're so thankful for what took place there in the valley with the giant. And I pray that it speaks to our hearts today. Lord, if there's anybody here to whom this does not apply, who 
as they heard those, those final words, realized they're not a believer. They've never trusted Jesus as their Savior. Uh, and, and maybe there's some here who just don't even understand what that means, who, who wonder what I'm talking about when I say that. And if that's the case, then, Lord, they need to trust Jesus as their Savior. And I pray today they would. I pray as we sing, they'd step out, come to the front, and uh, let somebody take the Bible and show them how they can know. Uh, or talk to the person next to them in the pew and say, hey, how can I know for certain that I'm on my way to heaven? How can I be saved? How can I be born again? Uh, I just pray, Lord, if that's the case today, folks would respond in that way. And, Lord, I pray if there are Christians here today who are facing uh, a giant or giants, going through things in their life that seem insurmountable, difficulties, trials, problems, uh, just the, the, the pains that are part of this fallen world, I, I pray today, Lord, they take strength and courage and, and, and encouragement from this story of David. And may they know the battle is the Lord's. And may they give it to you today and trust you as David did. No fear, no discouragement. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And I pray today that would be the case. If some need to come and perhaps kneel here at this altar and pray about some of those things, give them back to you and say, Lord, I've struggled with this. I've been fighting this giant all by myself, but I want to give it to you. Perhaps some need to do that today. Lord, whatever the needs might be, some might need to come and say, I want to be baptized next Lord's Day in the baptismal service. Father, whatever the needs might be, If you've spoken to hearts, I pray people would respond, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.